We are continuing our series in Philippians tonight. We're nearing the end, slowly but surely. And as I was thinking about this passage tonight, what really struck me and what I wanted to think about um, to sort of get us situated was I, I find kids, like little kids especially, completely fascinating. But in a way that I think kind of a lot of people find kids really fascinating, because whether you've experienced it yourself or not, I'm sure we've all had that experience where there might be like a kid dancing in a cafe or at a restaurant if there's live music playing, and it's kind of like pretty much everyone in the room is glancing over at some point or another, or smiling and appreciating what's going on. Or the second there's a first grandchild at Christmas or on a family holiday, all of a sudden it's like every single person in the room has their eyes on this tiny little human. And I'm at an age now, I've got a few friends that have started to have kids. And there is this kind of irresistible pull, not just for their mother's attention, but also for me and usually for anyone else that's around us. There's something about having this tiny little beautiful growing and dependent being in front of you, it brings up this desire in us to make sure that they don't stumble, that they succeed, that, that they're being watched over for. And when I was thinking about this, I, I think there's a temptation to think that there's this kind of purely maternal instinct about that. Um, but I took to the very uh, official research facility that is YouTube and found a video that shows that this is not just me and all of my friends um, watching you know, their kids about this. Dads also have something within them that when um, there is danger in sight, they can absolutely leap into action. So team, if we can um, play that video. I love those videos so very much. But um, I think when we look at something like that, I wanted to draw a bit of a parallel. Because see, the church in Philippi were not babies. They weren't little kids like that. But the church and the believers there, they were young and they were still finding their way. And the way that Paul, who writes the letter to the Philippians, feels about that church, I think is a little bit like the way that those, those dads and uncles felt in that video and the way that I feel when I'm hanging out with my friends' kids. There's this love and attention. He's constantly thinking of them and praying for them. And whenever he sees something that's about to see, you know, sees them heading into danger, heading into something that's not good for them, he wants to be on the ball. He wants to have his reflexes sharp and to jump in and to make sure that they are keeping on, on the straight and narrow, that they're keeping on in things that are good for them. And so we've already seen so much in this series so far that this letter is filled with all of this warmth and these well wishes that are based on this deep hope that Paul has that the church would be able to walk strong and to grow up so well in their faith. And the passage tonight continues along in that. So I wanted to, um, to read it for you up front. It'll be up on the screen. Um, it's Philippians 3 verse 17 to 4 verse 1 if you've got your Bibles here and want to follow along. So he says, Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. 
Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord this way, my dear friends. And so we can see in that last verse there that Paul has so much love for this church. He calls them my brothers and sisters, those whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. That is not just a casual, I hope you're doing okay kind of relationship. He deeply cares for these people. But not only can we see that relationship in that verse, we can also see his his desire and deep hope for the church that they would stand firm in the way of the Lord. He wants them to stand firm. And so what we're going to look at tonight is exactly how he tells the church to do that through these verses. Because, of course, just as there were lessons for the church 2,000 years ago about how to stand firm in their faith, there's, of course, lessons that we can learn today as well. So would you just um, join with me for a second as we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us learn here tonight. Lord, we thank you that you are our great Father, that you are always watching out for us as your children. And so we pray tonight, Lord God, that as we come to this passage and we learn and we reflect, that you would help us to have sharp minds and eyes to be able to look at our life and to see anything around us that that may not be good for us, that might be dangerous for our faith, that might be risking us harm. And so as we heed the words of Paul, Lord, help us to look at our lives with fresh eyes, with the help of your Holy Spirit, so that we can learn and grow. We want to know you better. We want to walk faithfully with you, Lord. And so we know we need your help. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and speak to our hearts, intercede for us. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that there's so much comfort in your word, that there's so much beauty in your word, but there's also warnings and there's cautions. And so tonight we want to take stock, Lord. So would you help us to reflect well on that as we travel through this this passage tonight? Lord, help me, would you just make sure that anything that I say is from you and you alone. Lord God, would you help us all to grow deeper roots in you here tonight. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we can see from the beginning of this passage, Paul is telling the church to stand firm by learning from the example of those who live godly lives. We read verse 17 again. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So we can see the first example that he tells the Philippian church to follow is his. And now if any of you were here a couple of weeks ago, I preached on the verses preceding this, and it may look a little bit strange because in those verses he made this huge song and dance about ensuring that the church in Philippi knew that he was not the perfect Christian, that he did not have it all together, that he was still just a man, that he was broken like anyone else. But here it kind of looks like he's putting himself off on a pedestal and saying, nope, this, I am the example that you should be following. But we have to understand that just because Paul wasn't perfect, he might not you know, have arrived in terms of, of the ultimate form of Christianity, it doesn't mean that he is not a good role model. 
Because when we look throughout the, all of the, the New Testament, lots of those letters that were written to the churches, the idea of following Paul's example actually crops up a lot. And we need to take comfort in the fact that when we look at all of those times when he says, follow my example, he takes that responsibility really seriously and with a whole lot of humility. I wanted to read a verse from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He tells the church in Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So this verse we have in Philippians doesn't include that caveat at the end of up, but we need to remember to read this verse in the context of the whole book of Philippians, in the context of the whole New Testament, where we can see that Paul knows that Jesus Christ is the ultimate example that we should be following. But Paul was the one that the churches were communicating with and communing with. He was anointed specially as a teacher and a leader for these people. And so the church should follow Paul's example as far as he is following the example of Christ. He doesn't just tell them to follow his example, though. He says, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, the us that he's talking about there is himself and Timothy as well. Timothy helped Paul write this letter to the church in Philippi. Those who live as they do could have been all the other apostles that were leading the church in other areas in that time, and also just other leaders and Christians who were following Christ to the best of their ability. But the apostles and Paul and Timothy, they were people who had been really specially appointed and gifted to be able to lead the church. They were devoted to understanding and learning the scriptures and teaching them to those around them. So they had a special responsibility to show the early churches how to live faithfully. And so it's them and all the other believers who are following the ways of Jesus who should be noticed. And so if we're going to learn from this today ourselves, that we need to look to the example of those who live godly lives, we have to ask the question, what does that look like for us? Because we can learn from the example of people like Paul and Timothy and, of course, Jesus. But we do it through the Bible. We do it through Scripture. We don't have personal first-hand experience. Paul's not going to visit us the way that he did the church in Philippi. We can delve into Scripture and learn so much from the way Jesus lived, learn so much from the way the early church grappled with what it meant to live out the faith in this world. But we're different to the Philippian church in the sense that we have a whole 2,000 years worth of history, worth of leaders and thinkers and theologians that we can also learn from. And it may be totally dorky of me, but if I can encourage you to dive into some of the historic authors and thinkers of our faith, do it. People like Augustine, people like Charles Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer, some of the, the greatest minds of the Christian faith over history, but bring such a beautiful insight and richness to our faith and theology, what we believe about God. We also, these days, we have the internet, right? We have access to a wealth of teaching and Christian influences, pastors and worship leaders and, and all sorts, and they've got books, they've got sermons, we've got Instagram story spiels that we might get stuck on from time to time. We have to understand, though, that just like the early church was told to follow Paul's example, as long as he was following the example of Christ, we too 
should only follow those examples in our world, in our life, in our history, as far as they follow the example of Christ. There's no checklist to know how to discern these things well and match them up. It's just a caution for us, I suppose, not to take everything we hear as total gospel, as total truth. We have to evaluate everything we come into contact with ultimately at the standard of how Christ lived. And so I think there's a principle behind this verse for us today to look to pastors, to look to mentors, to look to local leaders, to look to theologians and authors, those who stick out to us as people who live godly lives of integrity and of truth. And we need to watch these people and learn from them so that we can stand firm and apply the truth of God to our lives really, really well. But what Paul says next helps us to know some of the red flags that we might want to look for when we are approaching this wealth of of influences and, and material that we have available for us in our world. In verses 18 to 19, he says, For, as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul's saying here that while he and Timothy and the other apostles, they're the kind of examples that the church should follow, there are plenty of others out there that may look the part, but they actually betray some of the beauty and the message of the gospel. Now, the the big brains that read the Bible and study these things, all the academics, they think Paul could be talking usually about one of two groups here. The first possibility is that it was kind of the like extremist Jewish Christians among them. There were lots of people in the early church that were Jews that became Christians. But after becoming Christians, instead of relying on the grace of Christ alone for salvation, really strongly, not just believed, but tried to impose upon everyone else that you still had to follow all the rules and ceremonies of Judaism. You still had to be circumcised. You still couldn't eat certain foods or else God would not see you as fully, fully clean. That's why Paul would be saying that they would be enemies of the cross because they were adding extra requirements on top of what Jesus did for salvation. Their glory is their shame because all of these rules that they took so much pride in were actually kind of insulting to the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. The other option is Christians that had gone a little bit astray, like what we read in the book of Corinthians, a different letter of the Bible. The Corinthian church had taken all the sentiments of Christian faith that were to do with the power of the resurrection and the glory of being a Christian and the perfection that we were to receive and they took all of that and hoarded it in and they really kind of tried to ignore anything about suffering for the faith or the humiliation of the cross. And so there's a chance Paul could be talking about them because they kind of wanted to ignore all of the dark, all the humiliation and the shame that Jesus endured to save us. They claimed that all they had was glory and perfection and in doing so they ignored their own brokenness and they didn't lean on God the way that they could have. So we don't know exactly who Paul is talking about here, but either way, He is warning the church not to follow the example of people who ignore crucial aspects of the gospel and only focus on things that bring them earthly 
qualification or gain or standing in this world. And for us today too, we need to be careful of this as well. And it looks different for us, right? We don't necessarily have zealous Jewish converts in our church here today. But as I said before, we are absolutely soaked in Christian leadership influences now that we live in this digital and globalized age. Today, we're on the lookout for things like the prosperity gospel that in a lot of ways kind of mirrors some of the problems of what was going on in Corinth, the theology that says that God only blesses Christians, that you won't suffer if you're not feeling victorious 100% of the time, then you just don't have enough faith. We have to look out for churches and, and leaderships that place way too much stock on how something looks, how fancy the building or the stage or the people in the congregation need to be. Things like beautiful facilities are, are a blessing. They're not bad in and of themselves. But there are certainly places in our world where other Christians, other believers aren't deemed good enough because they don't measure up to a certain stock of what is realistically a completely man-made earthly standard. When we see leaders, people, churches that minimize the beautiful sufficiency of the grace of the cross by putting too much value on our own glory or success as humans, then these are the kinds of people that Paul would want to caution us not to follow, not to lean too heavily on their teaching. Because as the people of God, we know that this earth isn't our home, that we shouldn't place all of our stock on what this life alone has to offer us. He says at the end of this passage, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Philippi, the church where this um, letter was received, was a Roman colony. Roman were the big, the Roman, they were the big superpowers of the ancient world. And there was a good chance that there were a lot of people in this church who had a Roman citizenship. Not everyone would have, but some of them would. And to have a Roman citizenship in that day, a lot of people took a lot of pride and a lot of security because, you know, you belonged to the big, scary superpower of the day. And Paul is taking a little bit of a dig here to those people and saying, you've got to remember, you have a greater citizenship. You have a far more reliable and a far more loving citizenship. It can be so tempting to, in a sense, put all of our eggs in the earth basket, to think that what happens here is the be-all and the end-all. It defines us. It makes us who we are. But Paul is correcting that here and reminding the church in Philippi and us all the way to today that the promise of eternity is something that we have to hope in so much more. Even though there were those who had their minds set on all this earthly stuff, Paul is determined for the readers of this letter to remember that to be a Christian is to have your eyes set on eternal things, to have your eyes set on heavenly things, it is the greatest promise and hope of our gospel and our faith, the resurrection of the believers and an eternity with God. 
It's the great promise of our faith that our ultimate destination, our ultimate home is heaven. That one day Jesus will come and he'll redeem all of his followers, all of this creation into something that is so beautiful and so perfect. Paul says here that what happens when all those who believe will be gifted with their resurrection body, right? I know lots of popular culture depicts us in heaven with wings and halos and we're kind of ghostly. And there's so much mystery about what heaven will look like. But from what we can glean in scripture, we are told that we will still be flesh and blood. God created it good and it became broken, but he will make it good and beautiful again. I wanted to read a little bit of a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks a whole lot more about this idea of us being resurrected and taken home to be with our Lord. He says, there are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different to the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. God has so much more in store for us than what happens here in this life. And it is only right to acknowledge the brokenness that we see in our world and in ourselves because it's when we acknowledge that that we can truly hope for and appreciate all the more what is to come. And I know we bang on about this a lot, but the perspective it brings is a game changer. Any time in my life that I have felt unanchored, that I have felt spun out or like I'm drowning, The comfort that God has used to put my feet back on the ground has always, always, at some way, come back to the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternity. Because there is nothing, there is nothing on this earth that can overpower the blessing and the light of what's to come. There is still pain, there is still suffering, and it is felt in this life but all of it is temporary when we know where we're going. Those whose example we should follow are the kind of people that remember this, that live by this truth, that know it's not about what happens to us in this life, what status we can drum up, what success we can find, how much money we can save. They mean so little in a heavenly economy. It's about becoming more like Jesus loving God deeper, loving our neighbours, working in this life with the intent to see God's beauty and love and character shone out into this world. If there is anything in our faith that can allow us to stand firm, it's the hope that we have in eternity with our Lord. It's a hope that we need to preach to ourselves and each other every single day. And it's a hope that we should make sure is ringing through the lives of anyone whose example we are following. And so I think the real crux of this passage is that we need to make sure that our earthly influences are heavenly influenced. Making sure that our earthly influences are heavenly influenced. And I think our response to this passage should be to kind of check the influences and the teachers and the mentors that we are letting reign over our Christian walk 
Are they enemies of the cross? Maybe even if it's in disguise. Do their teachings or their efforts or their priorities pull your attention and your value down into earthly terms, earthly success? Of course, our conduct on this earth does matter. We do need to follow God well. We do need to obey his commands. But when we feel like our identity as a person is more heavily defined by things that the world says are sparkly and good and true, then that's when we have a problem. Maybe you're thinking about the kind of influences in your life and you are like, no, they're the kind that should be respected and celebrated and imitated, just like Paul's. Influences whose deepest desire for you on earth is to love God deeper, to live like Jesus, and to leave a mark of flourishing on those around you in this life. Influences who never ever take their eyes off heaven and are constantly pointing your eyes to that perspective as well. It is a very, very crazy world out there right now. And we need to remember the hope and the freedom and the ways of heaven even more when things are hard. We need to cling to what points our eyes to eternity. We need to make an effort to be a pointer ourselves. If you have someone in your life that does this for you, thank them. Show them love and gratitude for being the kind of family in Christ that Paul would champion out of this passage. And if you feel like you don't have that Go looking, ask us, we would love to help you find mentors, home groups, teachers that follow the way of God just as Christ did. We have things like the Bible, we have scripture that are so helpful in pointing us the right way in life, but having a community around us that not only helps us to understand it, but holds us accountable to living it is so, so important. We need support. Because just like those kids in that video from the beginning, sometimes it feels like we can slip in the blink of an eye. But when we're surrounded by those who love God and are on a dedicated journey toward him, we are going to be way better off in those moments. Just like Paul loved the Philippians and longed for them to stay centered and focused and true, that is so deeply my desire for every single one of us here tonight. And so that's why we ask ourselves, are the things influencing me in this life heavenly influenced? Does what we consume, is what we're learning from helping us to stand firm because it gives us perspective that only a hope of eternal peace can? That's what Paul wanted for the Philippians and it's just as useful for us today to make sure that the teachers we listen to, the mentors we meet with, the role models that we have have their eyes on and their arms pointed towards what's above, what is good, what is noble, and what is true. So that's where we need to set our eyes, distancing ourselves from anything that's going to distract us from that hope and that peace so that we can stand firm in our faith. We are not meant to do this journey alone. There is so much we can learn from others around us. And it's so important to remember where we are heading and making sure that those who are influencing us are constantly, constantly reminding us of that. So as the team comes up, we are going to pray. We're going to think, we're going to reflect on what it is that's speaking into our life and our heart. And we're going to continue to worship our Lord.
going to continue ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us, the Holy Spirit that himself also helps us to not end up in those situations that cause us harm. So let's, um, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for the rich history we have as the church now, that we have so much more knowledge and writing and thinking to reflect on, Lord, when it comes to our Christian journey and our Christian walk. Lord, we know that there is absolutely no replacement for your word. Lord, that you've given us a way to know you and to know you deeper. But Lord, we know that sometimes we need help to understand. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the help of of teachers and, and leaders around us. And so, Lord, above all tonight, we pray that you would help us to see any influences in our life that do not have their eyes fixed on you, that are not led by the hope and the perspective of our gospel. Lord, it's, it's, it's scary out there at the moment. Natural disasters and wars and cost of living, it, it is really easy to feel like things are kind of caving in, that we're getting a little claustrophobic in this this place we call home. Help us to remember, Lord, that what comes after this is so much bigger and brighter. Help us to live the truth of that out. Remind one another every single day that though we face trial in this world, there is peace and joy to come anything in our life that that tears our minds away from that. Lord, would you help us to see immediately that it's not good for us, that it's not you, Lord God. Help us to be on our guard and to stand firm by keeping our eyes on heaven and living alongside those who remind us every single day of that truth. We thank you, Lord, for the hope and the promise of our faith. And we rest in it now as we sing to you and we worship. We bring you our worries and our fears and our concerns. And we we bring them to the foot of the cross, Jesus. We ask that you would take the burden, that you would fill us with peace. And that you would send us from here a little bit fuller and a little bit more whole in you. So we thank you and we just surrender to you now as we respond. Amen.